Bruce, breaking news, guitar wing breaking news. I've got something to play for you. You've got to have a listen to this. Do uh, I need to sit down? Yeah, sit down. You're going to sit down. I just want you to hear this. I don't know if this relates to you or not, but um, I thought it was interesting. Uh, yeah, have a listen to this. One feature of yours uh, and in Matt's and, and uh, Kirk's and, you know, lots of the awesome guys is the way that you approach changes. Yeah. Um, if you, how does someone start doing that? Are you going to talk if, about two fives? Are you going to talk about two fives? We can talk about, we can talk about if two fives. To, yeah. Yeah. So well, it, does that, cause that, I, for me, that was the thing that unlocked changes a, a little bit more than, well, but sure. Don't, yeah, don't yeah, me, yeah. Don't let me just, derail you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but the thing, two fives, absolutely. Don't. Is that the best place? If someone is used to playing you know, lots of guys have got their pentatonics down. Yeah. How do you go from that to being able to now the changes? This is how you do it, okay? To me, the biggest difference between a rock guy and a jazz guy is this. The hair. The number of people <laughs> at the gigs. Yeah, well, definitely the number of people <laughs> at the gigs. But a rock guy has no problem playing over the changes. Yeah. When Steve is playing, he's very melodic. And when a chord happens, he knows just what to play over that chord. But he doesn't necessarily play through them the way a jazz musician does. A jazz guy connects chords in a certain way. Right. He So you can play all these amazing things over this chord and over this chord. But to get from there to there, you have to do something that makes the solo speak and not start and stop and not sound like you're changing keys when the next chord comes up. And that's the difference between a jazz guy. And the way you do that is basically, for me, threefold. You do chromatic connect chords together you use things like diminished and augmented chords which literally solely exist to create tension from one chord to another mm -hmm. chord mm -hmm. and then you use turnarounds like two five ones so those are the three things that started enabling me to not just play over changes because you have to there's no shortcut to learning what to play over each chord mm -hmm. you just have to know what's in each chord you know your and know what and... works over each not just arpeggios you got to know what intervals are in that chord and yeah, what scales and, yeah, and tones yeah. work on that chord mm -hmm. so that you can highlight them you can't shortcut that mm -hmm. but what you can work on is the way to once 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 you figure that out you can work on the ways to connect them together so in a blues setting that's not so difficult because you know the chords already mm -hmm. that are happening. So you got to focus on how to connect them together. And the way I did that was absolutely like this, by having an old dude show me these three things. He said, play rhythm for me. And I went... And when I did that, he stopped me. And he said, what would you just do? And I said, I played this little half step to get down to the four. And he said, why don't you ever play that in your solo? And I didn't understand what he meant. And he goes, all you're doing there in your rhythm is connecting, uh, finding a way to go from your one to your four with something. Do it in your solo. And I said, show me. And he went, I think I understand. Then he played it backwards. He went, and I realized he was just playing. And it was a big light bulb, like, that's it? He said, yeah, that's it. I said, okay, what's next? And he said, well, what chord are you on? And I said, the four. And he goes, well, what do you do when you play rhythm on the four? So I went. 
and it was like I didn't even know what diminished was, but I had learned that shape. And he said, "Why don't you ever play that in your solo?" I said, "I don't know how." So he went something as simple as. And it was again, it was like light bulb of, that's all you're doing is spelling out those in-between chords to get from one to the next. And it's creating this tension that when you get to the next chord, it's like you arrived. And that's what music is, you know, especially improvising. So I was like, what else, what else? And he goes, well, also on the four, have you ever heard like a Beatles song or a Ray Charles song where they go, from four to four minor. And I said, yeah, of course I've heard that before. And he goes, well, check this out. Fathead Newman, who played with Ray Charles, he had a solo that went like this. Oh, my God. That's, I, I can do that even if the rest of the band doesn't do that? And he goes, of course, try it. So I go... like holy sh crap you know like I, I i get it what's next and then he goes where are you at now i said five chord and he goes no let's make it a two five one i said what's what do you mean and he goes replace that whole bar of five with a, a bar of two minor and a bar of, of five dominant so he went and he probably showed me something that was like Right? So he just played, and it was just a huge, like, again, light bulb thing where all he's doing is taking these things that I was playing already in rhythm mostly and building them in between playing blues like a normal guy over the rest of the chords. And I became obsessed with that. So he told me, you should, you should take a piece of paper and write out 12 bars, so 12 slashes bars, and then fill them in with all those chords. Write it differently every time. So like maybe write. So I started just writing 12 bar passages like that with chords on, on every other beat at least. And then I just sit there, look at the piece of paper and try to hit those chords while I played by myself. So I would just go. I would do that's 10 years of that yeah, i would just did that. that constantly and then it became harder songs with more so um thoughts on that comment that we just listened to there wow um I'll, <laughs> I, I, I have to admit that Hold I, it. is that you is, is he talking uh, well, about well, you uh, i have to admit i've heard that before i've heard this before this okay. is not i mean so even though every time I hear it is, is a bit like getting kicked in the balls. <laughs> um, it, it's easier to breathe and I, I recover quicker every time I hear it. But the truth is, yes. Um, first of all, I love Josh. I've known Josh for a long time. I've given him some lessons. We hang out still. Uh, 
I really respect him for how, how he plays, and he's, he's really an amazing authority on so much old blues and R&B stuff. You know, I really got to, you know, whatever I say next, I want everybody to know I love Josh and, and I respect him. And obviously I was the one that brought him to the show. So, so you're some old dude. Yes, I guess I am some old dude. Uh, yeah, and uh, basically, Troy, and as you know, as as all the wankers know, guitar wankers know, a big part of my teaching has always been my ability to take the information that I've learned from all my years of being really into jazz and mm-hmm. studying it so yeah. much, and relate it in ways to guitar players so that they can understand it. Uh, the overwhelming majority of my students really don't want to be jazz guitar players. They want to be whatever kind of guitar player they are when they got there, but they want to add some jazz sounds to their thing, right. just like Josh. Yeah. And um, Josh, who's kind of obviously, uh, I didn't know he was famous for that till I saw this show. Um, but <laughs> anyways, and so I have really refined a way to express certain elements of jazz and make them very understandable to a guy who plays blues and rock. Right. And they can use those sounds. Now, of course, knowing that if they really want to be a jazz player, they're going to have to dig a lot deeper and do a lot more work than that. But just, you know, basically you come to me for a lesson, you want to get some jazz sounds and understand what's happening in jazz on a basic level. I can relate that to you in a lesson or two. And, and first of all, what Josh relates in this particular episode is a very very good example of what i showed him right i mean he really got it he was paying attention he understood it he's totally qualified to teach it because he really related it in a in a in a very clear organized manner the same way i related it Mm -hmm. you know which you know let's face it you got a lot of students in life they don't retain shit (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) right this was really I got to hand it to him. He got it. And obviously why his playing reflects that. Yeah. Um, where, I mean, being called an old dude, I guess I am an old dude, but it's kind of hard to hear that. That he didn't mention my name hurts me because there's, uh, what? how many hits, how many views does that thing have? At the moment, there it's, I think, 70,000. Okay, well, there's potentially 70,000 views where people could have actually heard my name and said, wow, I'm really interested in that. Maybe I'd like to go and find out what this old dude has to say. You know, maybe listen to one of his records and hear what he sounds like. That kind of a thing. So for him to have left that out on the other side is just fundamentally bad teaching. Because when I teach, and and it's all the guitar wankers know, whenever I say da-da-da-da, I got this from who I got it from. Whenever I talk about something, I, I... give the source for numerous reasons. One is, of course, to respect the people that showed it to me, regardless of whether I got it from their records or from them personally. And the other thing is to let the student go to the source because they may get something more or completely different from it than I did. So it's good teaching to to always remind people, this is where I got this, this is reminding me this, so you go to the source and find out what I'm talking about and maybe you'll get a deeper understanding and all those other things. So... On the two levels that this really hurts me, the you know the kicking the balls of some old dude, which I totally understand because you know when I hear hear him say it, the more I hear him say it, it's kind of like oh yeah you know what is what do we really think when he says that? It's some 
old homeless in New Orleans on the street corner that showed him some shit. It's really, it's romantic. It's really right. nice. Or it's a crossroads moment, like Robert Johnson with the devil. Right. Right? I mean, that's what it kind of, you know what I mean? It's got some showbiz lore, and it's got some storytelling. And I got to admit, Josh is a storyteller, so that's great. You know, I can relate to that. Where it hurts me is that, like, yeah, maybe the people, like that guy who was screaming up and down about 251 at, at the beginning of that yeah. segment, the host, he, maybe the he'd host. like to hear what I have to say about 251. Right. Because, like, as much as Josh kind of knows about it, in it honestly, and he would admit this. Yep. I mean, this is my life. Yeah. This is not only my playing and my study, but my teaching as well. This guy would probably get a lot out of my two five one stuff on my videos, right. which are readily available where I forget. Where's... Um, MyMusicMasterclass.com. Right. So for me, there's my issue with it, along with just being called an old dude you know well it wasn't just it was some old dude some old dude it's not just any old dude it was just some old dude You're right you know so <laughs> so what can i say uh it's not going to hurt my friendship with josh we get together all the time every time he's in norms and he uh falls in love with another l5 or archtop guitar he always sends me pictures i think i think he wants me to buy it I think he's trying to sucker me into buying it so he can borrow it from me because <laughs> I, I, I don't really think he wants to own it but he just goes nuts over it you know i always tell him buy it man you know i got enough guitars buy it you know and i loan him guitars if he ever wants them right as i do with scott so uh i mean it's not going to affect our friendship in any way but i'm definitely going to bust his ball <laughs> well i think we're definitely busting his ball i i heard it and i was like straight away i thought it was you I really thought it was. Well, it's my information. Yeah. I mean, it, and the fact that he has, he has actually taken some lessons from yeah, me I when I first met him. And then, and he even said it on our show. Yeah. And, um, and after that, we've hung out and played and talked about shit. And I've shown him stuff. And as he's shown me stuff. Right. Yeah. Which is what friends do. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, yeah, that he could, he could have shared the love, but, you know, uh, Maybe we should reach out to these pedal guys, and if this guy really wants to know about 251, I'll go on the show and I'll explain it to him. Yeah. And in a little bit, in a deeper way than Josh can, and probably a more organized way, only because I've been working my whole life doing it. Doing it, yeah. You know, but really, Josh is a great player, and Josh did a great job explaining that aspect. Well, I'm, I'm not, not that I'm unfamiliar with this concept or, or doing this. I, I've learned this from Tony. But I would love to hear, and this is where why I pulled it out, because it's like, well, some old dude, I actually want to hear what that some old dude, how he talks about it, and maybe he opens up more doors right. that Josh can't. Right. You being the some old dude. Right, and you've been listening to it yeah. for two years here, so, along with the hanging yeah. we do. So, so I, wanted, I would like to hear, and I'm sure our listeners, and maybe either we do this now or at, at some point in the future, I would like to hear your more in-depth and teaching method on this or tell us where to go for the videos to get this this concept right well there's a lot of it all throughout my five videos right um and and i'm very happy it's at future guitar wanks to answer questions and, and even do some demonstrating you know how scott is so reticent to do teaching here but since scott's gone so much maybe we can sneak in some stuff while he's gone yeah and he'll never even know about it <laughs> <laughs> I love okay. that. But, uh, so you brought me all the way over here for this, huh? This breaking news. I thought it was important. And, okay. Uh, 
I thought it was funny. Okay. <laughs> and the show's name, I mean, are you, you know. I know the guys on the pedal show. Um, oh, this is the pedal show. The pedal show, yeah. It, the Aussie guy uh, who d- does um, gig rig. It's, 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 it's in London or something, Yeah, right? these guys are in London. Um, I've talked to them on, uh, at NAMM. Oh, okay, cool. But, um, yeah, I guess Josh was over there and he was on the show. And Great. That. But, um, yeah, it's, it's okay. by no means, it's no new concept, but it's just the way you teach it. Right, and he really, and Josh really got something out of it, and it really meant a difference to him, obviously. Yep. And I'm, I'm really flattered on that level. You know, the, the generic some old dude part does... <laughs> Sort of uh, chafe, you know what you I know, mean? I think for the next few episodes, I'm going to be like, uh, Scott, welcome, and some old dude. But think- he, Scott's older than me. <laughs> like, yeah, but... And, and, and get- let's face it, I'd like to have a poll of which one of us actually looks more decrepit and older. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get t-shirts made, just guitar wank, some old dude. Right. <laughs> Thank Josh. We had to bust your balls on that, Josh. You, yeah. you know yeah, you, you had it coming. You had one. it coming. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. All in good fun. Anyway, and, all right. Well, that was our breaking news. I'm sure we'll let's have get on with, on with the show. Folks. On with the show. Guys. Well, be, meanwhile, uh, yeah, some old dude has to go take some medicine and uh, get a nap. Where did I put my walker, anyway? Right. Oh man. <laughs>
Can I can I do the intro today? Yeah. You <laughs> All always right, do Bruce, the intro. You do the intro. <laughs> Go. Well, welcome everybody to Guitar Wank. <laughs> of course, we have our illustrious host Troy McCubbin here with us. Well, unfortunately, well, he's sort of illustrious. He went <laughs> vegan on us, so now he's shrinking away to nothing, and he's. He made me like check all my leather goods at the door, <laughs> and uh, we're scot free tonight. He's in Lithuania, I believe. Woohoo! Yeah, and uh, or maybe Poland, one of those two. But we're really—I'm just so excited to have a guest because it's rare you get a guest who like is known by only one name. You know, a guy like Elvis. <laughs> or or OJ or or Jesus or Moses, you know what yeah, I mean. There you go. And tonight we have one of those guys. We have Norm. It's Norm's uh, from Norm's rare guitars. The, oh, so the delicatessen. The, no, the no, the no, that no. I he the probably on the side. Yeah, you know, I do whatever. Yeah, yeah. He's probably doing sandwiches out the back of his guitar <laughs> shop. Anyways, we got Norm of Norman's rare guitars here in the San Fernando Valley, and I'm excited to hear just all about. Everything, how it all started, all the instruments he's seen, all the crazy shit that's happened in your store. So there's like, been a uh, lot of crazy stuff. But let me ask you one question. Well, me probably doing this, me promise. doing this, does this make me an official wanker or what? Uh, I think you already were before you got here. Oh, thank you. All right. All right. I, mean, yeah. I mean, I've been reading your Facebook stuff, man. I'm sorry. That's it pretty wanked out. Yeah. Sorry about yeah. that. Now, you do walk away with a guitar wank mug. Yeah. Oh, so, all right. And there picks. And picks. And coasters. And all right. <laughs> so, you know, you, you're not going to walk away empty-handed. You you may really have lost all your credibility. That's right. I've already done that. Okay. <laughs> now, hold on. You, you're not a guitar player. You know, I was originally a Hammond organ player and keyboard player, and I have done a couple gigs on bass. Actually, I played for about two years with an R&B band. I was mainly the keyboard player. And then when the bass player got a call for $50 more, which is typical <laughs> which is LA gig, yeah. you know, you get 50 bucks more, the guy takes off on you. So we had a gig and we didn't have a bass player. And I said, well, I've never really played bass in a band, but... You know, I know the chord changes, and I know enough about music, and I know enough about staying out of the way. So I ended up playing bass for two years in the band. It was a nine-piece R&B band, and it was some of the most fun I've ever had, actually, playing wow. music, to tell you the truth. Now, this, this is back in Florida? No, this from? was out here. I, I okay. grew up in Miami, and uh, I came out here with a band uh, in 1970 uh, with this guy, Bobby Caldwell. And um, we had a band called Katmandu, and uh, we were we picked a name that was sort of drug induced, and <laughs> you know, and there, that kind of explains a lot of our success. But uh, Bobby actually ended up. He did well. He did very well. What happened was he ended up going back to Miami, and uh, you know, we we worked out here, but you know, we were playing some original material. And at the time, the club owners wanted us to play all top 40 stuff and whatever. And it sort of wasn't what we came out here for. And um, so eventually things didn't work out. Bobby went back and he ended up signing with TK Records. And he had a big hit with What You Won't Do For Love. Wow. And uh, I, I wrote a tune with him uh, later on called Open Your Eyes, which uh, this rapper Common Cut, and oh, it actually on, really? did very well. And um, I got a gold record for that. And uh, he actually took part of the verse 
and turned it into a chorus. It was called Open Your Eyes, but he changed it and it ended up being The Light. And then apparently John Legend found it later on and maybe an album or two ago, he cut it on one of his records, but it was an album cut, you know, so that's about the story of my musical career. Common find this track was it? He just he was looking well. Bobby is like a really soulful, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, great singer, great songwriter, and um, a lot of people have kind of dug into his catalog, right? Because you know, what you won't do for love is a classic, yeah, R&B tune. I actually did a you know, one of those geezer tours, uh-huh. uh played, I was playing with Roger Kellaway's trio, and we did a thing, it was us and Tom Scott and Bobby Caldwell. With like the Arizona Symphony, mm-hmm. where they did everybody's hits, kind of. Right. And then we all played together. Oh, and uh, who's the other guy was on here? Uh, Kenny Rankin was on that. Oh, he's right. Yeah. yeah, they're all great, you know, but of course everybody was, you know, it was kind of like a... A drug the fest? Ge- Trust the geezers out, you <laughs> oh, know what I mean? The geezer oh. druggies, you know. Okay, there you go. And uh, we all, we had a, it was a great show, but that was when the, I mean, I saw Bobby and boy, what a soulful sound. I remember when that hit came out you know I just really well they couldn't him. even put his picture on the record I know because they, they were, right. right they didn't want to you know turn the black audience off you right. know so they kind of did like a wow. caricature and yeah. uh, I thought he was black for the longest time yeah. you know until I finally saw a picture now did you get looked after when Carmen did your song yeah oh, I actually okay. did pretty good then and then when John Legend did it I thought I was going to really make a killing yeah and, you know, these days, you know, you can't oh. really, I mean, they they don't pay you for writing stuff anymore. That's well, kinda, there's really not. The, 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 How do you the, sell something that's right, for free? Right. Yeah. The thing is, is the sales aren't there anymore that used to be. You know, used to be you'd had a whole lot of sales. Now everybody's streaming. Right. So it's you're not getting, oh. you you know, your mechanicals on a thing like that. Or even on a, like a John Legend is nothing like. Well, it, it was an album cut, 20, so it yeah. wasn't a single, right. so. Right. It, and yeah, and it's like a me- we get mechanical royalties for that, and people aren't buying the whole record. You know, they're mm-hmm. downloading stuff, and so. Did it's you, did you like world. what he did with it? Common. Uh, yeah, and John. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, Common, um, he actually took the chorus that Bobby sang, and uh, or or part of the verse and made it the chorus. So it was Bobby singing it, yeah. and then Common doing the rap section. You oh, know, wow, and cool. kind of. You know, turn that into a verse. So yeah, it was good. You know, I mean, in terms of rap, it was. You know, I thought it was very oh, good because it was actually cool. it was music, yeah. and um, and and the rap section was good and it was done well and all that. Erica Badu um, cut the tune too, and then, uh, but uh, again, you know, I. You know, nothing great really happened. I mean, you know, it was it was an honor, but it wasn't a single again. Right. And then, um, and then John Legend a few years later found it and then did it as "Open Your Eyes." So it went back to kind of the original tune in a way. You know, wow! So. And he he killed it, I imagine too. Yeah, he did a real good yeah. job, and he did you know obviously played and sang the whole thing. Yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, it was you know not a rap tune anymore. It went back to what it originally was. How in the hell does this right. come around to... Get, right, how does that soul? person become, like, one of, obviously, one of the most famous, well-known uh, curator, purveyors, collectors, and experts on vintage guitars? How very does, easy. How does this happen? Very easily, because I never really made a good living playing music, So, <laughs> yeah. and because I like to eat on a normal 
basis or an everyday basis, I figured I'd better do something. Plus, you know, I knew well, kind of... Well, but still, there's a bunch of stuff you could have done. Right. Well, I love guitars. Mm -hmm. And the reason I love guitars is it's very similar to a vocal, where you can do a vibrato, slow vibrato, or fast vibrato. It's an expressive instrument where a piano, you hit a note, yeah. and that's it. An organ, you hit a note. On a synthesizer, you can get that vibrato thing, but it's kind of, you know, it, it doesn't do it for me. It's sort yeah. of not organic, you know, but... I got very lucky because with guitars, I could pick up a guitar and I could show it to you and I could truthfully say, this is a great guitar. When I used to try to pitch my music, I would try to tell somebody it was great and then I'd go and hide under a bush or something, you know, <laughs> yeah. so it's very hard to do, especially when it's that personal to you, you know, right. and it's, you know, when there's hundreds of years of heritage between Gibson and Martin and Fender and yeah. all that kind of stuff. It's an established good thing. My music, eh, you know, I mean, it was... Yeah, but uh, still, okay, you're there you are, you decide you're hungry, is from what right. I'm getting. My wife kind of helped that, yeah, too. Yeah, 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 she's, she's hungry, me she's hungry too. Right, but... And then you decide, okay, uh, it's like banking or guitars? I mean, you know. Well, guitars was music, <laughs> and it was kind of plan B. And what, what happened was, um, in Miami, I, uh, you know, I, first, we were, we were playing, and I was just looking through the newspaper, and I found um, a Fender bass. Actually, I had, when Bobby was playing, he played guitar and bass. There was another guy named Bobby Jabbo who played in the band, too. And they both played guitar and bass, but neither one had a bass. So I said, you know what, I'll go out and buy a bass, and I'll try to learn to play it. In the meantime, you guys can use it, and, you know, you guys can kind of split, you know, the, the bass chair, you know, in the band. And um, so it turned out, I ended up buying this bass. It was kind of a double kind of uh, crazy thing. In Miami, I was a big fan of a band called Frank Williams and the Rocketeers featuring Little Beaver. Little Beaver was this great blues, R&B guitar player and singer. If you ever heard the tune uh, Clean Up Woman by Betty Wright, that's Little Beaver on the guitar on that. Beaver was an amazing singer. So anyhow, I go out, I buy this bass from this guy, and I go to Liberty City, which was, you know, a black section of town. I end up buying the bass from the guy, and the guy's writing up the receipt, and he, as he signs it, he signs it Frank Williams. And I, you know, I said to him, you're not the Frank Williams from Frank Williams and the Rocketeers featuring Little Beaver. I, I had found this radio station, yeah. WMBM in Miami, and I was like crazy about a lot of the R&B stuff, you know. So, and this guy couldn't believe that this white kid was, even knew who he was, because, right. you know, this was not on the typical radio stations, it was on the R&B station. So I ended up buying this bass from one of my idols, <laughs> And then it turned out that all the guys in town that I knew wanted the bass because it was an early jazz bass. And, uh, and this was back in the, you know, maybe around 67 or so. So already people were kind of pick up, picking up on the fact that the old instruments were actually made really well. And, you know, it was kind of an inside click. And um, so you got kind of the idea from that. Yeah, I mean, because people were making me offers on it, and I was going, "Well, nobody's offered what, me too much on my music, but they're offering me what, on this what bass." What was the bass? What year was it? It was a '62. It was a three-knob bass, yeah. but it was one of the very first 
jazz basses with three knobs. Yeah. So prior to that, there were the concentric right. stack knobs, you know, with the volume and tone stacked, and then this was volume, volume, and a tone. So, uh, but people dug it, and they wanted the bass, and I went, wow, you know, maybe I could kind of supplement my very small into income into, uh, yeah. into... So straight away, you were thinking, business. I was thinking, boy, I'm pretty lucky that right. I ended up getting this thing. So you got this wanted. lucky, and then... Did you like just start checking the newspaper for like old ladies whose husbands had been had guitars in the closet and stuff? Uh, you know, I don't want to portray myself as that cruel, but, but yes, I was looking no, for people on, that you know, had yeah. stuff that you know back then. This is before the internet; people couldn't find out what they had. And to be honest with you, I didn't even know what I was doing. I right. kind of stumbled into it. So you know, I'd rather be lucky than good at anything. So I kind of fell into it people wanted the thing so i said well maybe i could kind of find some of these old instruments that people wanted by the way the guitar player in the band bobby jabbo who was you know one of the two guitar players in our band he had an old es335 and he would always rave about how the neck was because now by the later 60s they became the necks became more narrow with the nut right. and they kind of you know got fatter as you went up the neck where these early ones had a real even neck that was wide at the nut and there were you know he kind of pointed out to me why his guitar was so good so i started thinking wow you know maybe i could find some of these older instruments and find them from private parties i weren't playing them anymore and you know turn them into a living Wow. And that just sort of blossomed, and you kept doing that as you came out I west. was playing music, but I was doing this on the side to kind of pick up some other money, yeah, but and I mean, it was starting to get but really good on the, the instruments, and not really that great with the music. Were you on the road, or you, you when you guys came out here, you weren't really on the road, you well, moved here. We right? were, we came out here, but uh, actually... Little Richard's brother was our manager, and Richard had heard <laughs> our band, and he thought we were a very good band, and he said, you know, why don't you guys come out to California, I'll hook you up with Mo Austin and all that, and, you know, and we were kind of green and dumb, and we said, sure, and we jump in this van, <laughs> we come out to L.A., you know. Well, so, so you because, I mean, obviously, my, my point about that is, which that's interesting enough, but, okay, so you're doing this thing. One of the things about doing... The, the side job, which was really your money and became your your whole living, is, I mean, you need some storage area to do this job. Well, it's not I the did. kind of thing you can do in a van. You know, you can't bring like 25 guitars with you. I mean, unless it's well, just Well, I did whatever I had to do and what right. I could do under the circumstances. I didn't have a lot of money and I had to kind of... So you're you just know, moving stuff. You get yeah, something, just, move it, get it. Well, I moved it. it, but one thing that I was very lucky in that when I found something that I thought was really special, uh -huh. I would take it and kind of put it aside. Uh -huh. And I kept doing that, you know, just because I figured, you know, how many of these things are in great condition that you could find. And I kept just like stashing some stuff. And then before I knew it, I had, you know, quite a few really nice instruments and people were bugging me to buy them and I didn't know whether to sell them or not. Right. And, and I was learning all along the way because there were no books or right. anything, nothing to tell me really what I was doing. There was an old repairman in Miami. His name was John Black. And he was like this old cantankerous guy. And I would drag my wife. I've been married for 49 years and I've been with her for even longer. And I would <laughs> drag my wife to this guy's house and I'd sit there and pick his brain and he was like one of these guys who'd go, 
this guitar was played by the Gold Dust Twins on the radio <laughs> in 1930. And my wife would be, okay, that's enough. Let's get the hell out of here. And I'd be going, no, 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 let's, let's listen. So I was able to gain a lot of information from this old guy. And then I would always ask questions, you know, to any of the people I was buying instruments from. I would say, where did you get it? How long have you had it? Um, you know, what kind of music did you play? And, you know, it eventually gave me the information to keep going. And, uh, you know, I kind of learned as I was going along. There was no reference book. There was no, there was the first book about um, guitars was this guy, Tom Wheeler, who recently passed away. He was one of the editors of Guitar Player Magazine later on, but this book was called American Guitars. And it was kind of like the first textbook of vintage guitars. Kind of let a lot of people know what the guitars should look like and information on the guitars and features that you would find on these certain guitars. Right, and serial you know. even some serial number kind they of They have stuff. some serial numbers, but it would have things like, you know, model numbers that explain like if it was an ES335 yeah. TDC, you know, it'd be thin, yeah. double pickup, cherry finish, yeah. you know, and that kind of thing. So, right. um, you know, there was just little stuff that, you know, I'd be learning along the way and then people started asking me about their things and, you know, I was kind of passing along the information. And I was actually the first credit in that book, in the Tom Wheeler book. Um, he came to me and a lot of my guitars were pictured in the book and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And that was kind of the first reference book. And then he did like, um, you know, several editions to that. And so there was like book one, book two, you know, book wow. three. And so that sort of became the... Um, the Bible? The Bible. Right. And then there was um, Guitar Player Magazine had a thing called the Rare Bird. It was like the last page of the magazine. Yeah. And they would take one old guitar and they would kind of talk about it. This uh, friend of mine, Robbie Lawrence, used to write it. And uh, so... You know, it, all this stuff, you know, whenever I saw anything, I mean, I could read a book on science and not retain a fucking thing, you know. <laughs> but this, I was like a rain man for this crap, wow. you know. And, I mean, I would remember every detail. And it was like, you know, for somebody who was kind of an average student, uh, you know, I sort of was... Uh, I didn't go to the war in Vietnam because I was a good enough student to stay out of the war. <laughs> Once I got draft-deferred... Then all hell broke loose, you know, but I was a good enough student of guitars to kind of remember all this nonsense that, you know, I didn't think meant anything at the time, but then eventually became an actual career. So did, you didn't have a shop back in Miami? No, I was kind of doing it out of an apartment. And then when I came to L.A., we were living in a house we had no furniture. We were living in waterbeds. We were eating out of tin pans that we got at Eagle Army Navy. I mean, we were barely getting by. We were driving a car that could have been in the demolition derby. But I had some guitars, and I was buying and selling guitars, and we were practicing in the afternoon. I was getting up at 5 and 6 in the morning going out chasing guitars while the other guys in the band wow. were sleeping. Great. And um, I would go out and, you know, and chase so chasing guitars. guitars and then come back and rehearse. What, okay, let's say you're hunting guitars. What does that mean in, in 1970, 1969? Well, it meant that one thing that was really fortunate for me is we ended up uh, 
living in Sherman Oaks. You know, if you're in California, Sherman Oaks is in the San Fernando Valley. And what it is is dead center of the of this one area where there was the 405 freeway and the 101 freeway where it crosses. And I was right there. So what gave me a tremendous advantage is um, I would get up, at the, get the newspapers at 5.30, 6 in the morning. I'd call people who were really pissed off, you know, because <laughs> I was waking them up and I would have to make up all kinds of stories telling them, you know, I go to work and I have money on me and I saw your ad and I'm dying to come over. And some people would tell me to go get fucked. Okay. And other people would say, all right, well, come on over. And, you know, and I bought a lot of guitars that way. But because of the proximity of where I was, I was able to go north, south, east, or west. I could go anywhere from there and get there pretty quickly and i this was before call waiting you know and stuff yeah. like that so i would have my wife after i called and i jumped in the car and was heading over there i'd have my wife call these people up and keep them on the phone just asking stupid questions <laughs> to just keep them on the phone so that nobody else would call them you know, while I was heading down there and say, hey, I'll pay you more. Don't sell it to yeah. this guy. So she'd go, well, uh, how many strings does it have? <laughs> and does it have knobs on the guitar? And could you describe the color? It's red. Is it like a dark red? Or yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, she would just keep them on the phone until I could get there. So I'd buy the guitar and get the hell out of there before somebody else called. Mm -hmm. wow. And, and um, so I imagine, especially, well, Sherman Oaks, in Studio City, a lot of the studio players lived there. I mean, right. there must have been some instruments that were just sold by, like, widows of those people or... They just Why are you of, always going to this widow crap? Well, because you know, I mean, I don't because that's I'm really not looking for dead between, people. Between, between <laughs> you and me, as we all know, the yeah. real deals sort of happen, like, on the estate sale level a lot of times. Well, actually, what happened back was... Back then, not no, anymore, actually, because everybody's then, got the internet. No, listen, this is really kind of where okay. it was. Because, I mean, yeah, occasionally we'd find the widow or something yeah. like that. I'm just working you. Okay. So, but, but really what it was was a lot of groups were coming out here from all over the country. They'd bring their instruments. Things didn't work out too well. They'd have to sell their instruments to go back home. So it, I landed in a Mecca. You know, yeah. I stumbled into something that I couldn't have done any other place. So... Um, you know, just being in Los Angeles right. at that particular time. Right time, right place. Yeah, people were playing music with actual instruments back then. Now it's like, you know, if you don't have nine dancers and, uh, and a Pro Tools rig, right. you know, yeah. you're like, I don't know. You know yeah, so. right. Yeah, and so thinking back at that time, you know, in your early days, what was, is there like one major score that you like just remember your eyes popping out of your head? Well, there, there were a bunch of scores, but one thing that sort of, you know, changed everything was I used to deal with a friend of mine at a place called University Music, and they were in West LA. And I would consign him guitars. You know, I'd buy them privately and then I would consign him some guitars. And he knew I had a bunch of stuff and we were friendly and all that, you know. And uh, one day he called me up and he said, um, I have a very special customer here. And um, he, uh, is looking for a certain guitar. I need you to come over to the store. And I said, well, you know, it was kind of in the morning. I said, you know, I'll come over. And he said, no, I need you to come over to the store now. Wow. So um, I go over to the store. Oh, you know, before I went, I said, okay, you better tell me what's going on. He said, okay, it's George Harrison. And he 
uh, had one of his guitars stolen. It was a red Les Paul that Eric Clapton had given him. And the guitar was referred to as Lucy because it was red. It wasn't a sunburst. It was a red Les Paul standard from the late 50s, I think 58. So um, somebody had stolen the guitar from him. And apparently it was sold in a store in Hollywood. And they were able to get the information of who bought the guitar. And it was a guy who lived part of the time in Mexico, part of the time in the States. And the guy had gone back to Mexico. They had a phone number on him. Mm. They called him, and the guy said, hey, if it's George's guitar, I'd be happy to give it back to him. But in good faith, I bought a late 50s Les Paul Standard. Get me another lefty, uh, another Les Paul Standard uh, from the late 50s, and I'll be happy to exchange it and give you this guitar back, and you can get it back to George. He just said, I just want to be be made whole, too, because I, did, I bought it in good faith. I didn't, yeah, you know, right. all of a sudden. So anyhow, um, they get a hold of the guy. The guy agrees to it. So uh, he had happened to go to this place, University Music, and my friend called me up and said, come on down here, I know you have some late 50s Les Pauls, and you know, that's what he needs in order to get his guitar back. So anyhow, I go over to my friend's store, and my friend is sitting there in the, you know, entry of the store, and he's all by himself. And I walk in, I fought traffic, I'm running over there. I said, okay, where's Harrison? He goes, (laughs) he's actually here, he went over to get a slice of pizza right next door. And with that, George and Mal Evans, who was a Beatles road manager, come walking through the door. Now, you know, I mean, my eyes are like popping out. I mean, because the Beatles in 1970, to anybody who was a music lover, if you put the Pope and you put, you know, (laughs) the president and 10 of the biggest stars in the world together, it wasn't like a Beatle. The Beatles were something else. And I kept looking at them because, I mean, I could hardly believe it was him. I kept thinking it was a double or something, you know, but but it was him. And uh, we ended up going back to my apartment and my wife is still in her bathrobe. And I come walking in and I tell her, uh, you know, George Harrison's coming, you know, he's right behind me there, you know. She goes, yeah, right, you know. And with that, George and Mal come walking in. My oh, wife, boy. you know, like flips. We come in and we sat around and he played. I had three late 50s Les Pauls. He bought one to trade to get his guitar back. And he also bought a 1960 Sunburst Standard because he just liked it. And then he bought a 56 Strat for me. The Les Paul he paid $1,500 for. Right now, forgetting that George Harrison owned it, it's probably a $300,000 guitar. Um, Then he bought a a 56 Strat for me for 1,500 bucks and made me throw in this really minty tweed Princeton amp. You know, he's like, you know, hammering me and I'm going, you know, man, you can afford it. But I went, you know what? George Harrison, go ahead, take it, you know. And it was just like that kind of changed everything for me because all of a sudden people were talking about it and, you know, it was like I was developing a clientele of people that that's a big fucking knew deal. I had the stuff. It was <laughs> yeah. a big deal. And one thing that's kind of crazy, and I, in my book, you know, I have this book that I, I have two books. Oh, yeah, actually. well, tell us about your book. Well, in this one chapter of the book, I kind of tell a story. And what was really crazy is a, a few years ago, some uh, lady comes into my store and she goes, uh, you know, I remember where you used to live on Addison Street and Sherman Oaks, and um, I remember 
you had George Harrison come over there. Because it was like we parked in the underground parking lot and we're walking up and somebody er, saw Harrison coming in. All of a sudden, by the time we got through with our deal and everything, when I walked outside the apartment, there was about 100 people standing. <laughs> you know, so it was like kind of the talk of the building. Crazy. So she says to me, which this, and this is just L.A. for you, you know, because you never know who you might be living with, you know. Um, she said, you know, me and my sister lived in your apartment building. Actually, your wife knew my, my mom, and we were little girls. And uh, by the way, my sister's Paula Abdul. <laughs> so that's L.A. for you. I mean, you know, you just... You don't know who you're living with right. you know, right. in your apartment sure. building. Sure. I mean, they were uh, apparently, you know, something happened where the mom was divorced and the two girls were living there. And they were, they must have been five or six years old or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. You know, and so, but it was the talk of the building. I mean, it was like, you know, a beetle is in our how, apartment how was, complex. How was George? Was he... He, he was really nice. He was a little paranoid. I mean, you know, I think he... Wasn't sure if I was going to kill him or what. Or, yeah, rob him. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but we were with Mal Evans, who was a pretty big guy. And after we smoked a joint or two, everything was cool. And yeah. We had a good time. He actually had me go back to his place. He was running a place. And he had Rev Shankar was staying there. And it was in the Hollywood Hills. And he had this whole entourage of all these Indian guys playing all the Indian instruments there and, and all that. And we spent a couple days together because we had to get a hold of this guy who wanted his guitar. To, you know, who wanted to trade us back for that guitar. Right. And we had to make sure that we could put the whole deal together and make sure it was agreeable with everybody and, you know, logistically just getting everybody together and right. handing off the guitar, getting the guitar back in trade. So we spent about two or three days together and it was like, it was a complete mind blow for me. And George actually had offered me to trade me his Gretsch Country Gentleman, which is probably the guitar that's most associated right. with him. Yep. And at the time, I hated Gretsch guitars. Oh, no. And No, no, this is the dumbest thing. <laughs> this shows that if I had an IQ that was over 12, <laughs> you know, I don't know. But anyhow, I figured, who's going to believe that I have George Harrison's guitar? This was, I didn't have a store. I had no credibility. Nobody's going to believe me if I tell them, yeah, this is George Harrison scratch. I could have taken pictures. I could have got documentation, but I wasn't thinking too clearly, especially in those days. You know, I, I wasn't thinking that, clearly for quite a while. That has to be one of the biggest regrets in the business. Right? The biggest. That's a million dollar guitar or more. Yeah. I don't know what. You know, Do you so, know where that is guitar now? Well, I think his wife has it. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so um, I actually I'm, I'm buddies with a friend of mine who used to manage George. You know, yep. for. Uh, he also manages Bob Dylan and Paul Simon, and he did manage Donald Fagan. And um, so his wife, actually, there's another story where I had an opportunity to buy, um, you know, the Rosewood Telecaster uh, uh, that he had from, I think, the Let It Be era. No, it yeah. was an all Rosewood Telecaster yeah. that was made for George. And um, what ended up happening was uh, he had, according to him, loaned it to Delaney Bramlett. And according to Delaney, Delaney owned the guitar that he had given it to him. Delaney had put a humbucking pickup in it and uh, modified the guitar. He had the guitar for a number of years. And um, I have a buddy of mine, this guy, Jerry McGee, who has played with the Ventures for many years. He also played on the last train to Clarksville with the Monkees. Oh, and he played yeah. on a lot of, you know, he played with Chris Christopherson for many years. And he was a buddy of mine. He said, you know, um, Delaney, 
is willing to sell this telly. And uh, we went out and looked at the telly. And I could have probably bought it for about $60,000. But I talked to somebody else, and they said the word is George says that he loaned it to Delaney. And Delaney had a little different impression on that. So I figured, yeah, what I want to do is I want to buy a guitar for 60 grand and end up going to court with George over the guitar. Right, yeah. So I didn't end up buying it. And supposedly Ed Begley bought the guitar for George's wife anonymously. And yeah. now she has it back with his stuff. Oh, cool. Wow, man, fucking George Harrison's Gretsch. Damn. Yeah. yeah. Well, That's a big one. I'm not too bright, am I? You know? Well, See, you, I, went, you, know, you went to know back then, you're Stupidity. right? Stupidity. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was pretty high most of the <laughs> well, time. There you go. So, you know, I mean, I didn't I didn't know one thing from another, but if I was really together, I would have been able to document it. But there was no such thing as musical memorabilia at the time. Yeah. There was no hard rock cafe that had any of yeah. this stuff. I mean, uh, who knew what the thing might have been worth? And this was, you know, just shortly after the Beatles broke up. And, you know, it was, you know, not a, you know, a thing that there was any established value. Yeah. And I might have bought it and sold the thing way too prematurely yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah, well, we but, sure.
We always seem to do that. Yeah, <laughs> when you sell it, it's just, I can't, you know, everything I've ever sold, I have actually sold one guitar that I think I got more, you know what I mean, than I ever would have, and I'm not right. sorry about it. Everything else I'm like regretting. I have a, a chapter in this book that we did, and um, the thing in the chapter is when is the right time to sell a guitar? And basically the answer is never. Never. Yeah. <laughs> right, because uh, this, this friend of mine uh, had a store in Phoenix. His name is Bob Turner. Recently passed away again, too. You know, all my friends are dying. I don't know who's next in line. I hope it's not me right yeah. away. You know, so, but uh, anyhow, he um, was a guitar dealer. This is prior to him having a store. And he was buying and selling some instruments out of the paper as well. And so he goes out and he buys from an ad in the paper a really pristine Gibson SG Special, you know, from the early 60s, but it was like almost like new. And he's driving home from the buy, and he drives past this one house, and there's a kid standing in the front yard playing like a really odd-shaped guitar. And my friend, being the kind of having the nose of a hound, you know, <laughs> turns his car around, screeches, and goes back and sees the kid. And the kid's standing in the front yard holding an Explorer. You know, that's like the it's Maltese Falcon. That's a half a million dollar guitar right now if you even can price and and it was a nice shape. So my friend goes up to him and just starts talking to him. He doesn't know, even know what to say. And he, you know, there wasn't a lot of information back then, but he knew it was something really special, you know. So he starts talking to the kid and he said, yeah, I just went out and I just bought this beautiful SG and, uh, you know, and the kid goes, well, let me see it. And my friend pulls it out and the kid says to him, would you consider trading me the SG for the guitar I have? And my friend is like, you know, uh, yeah. And um, so they make the deal. And several months later, my friend sells it for 3000 bucks, thinking that, you know, this is now like in the early 70s. That was like a, That's a, a home run. That was a double grand slam home run. But the truth of the matter is, if he would have kept the guitar, you know, he could have bought a house with it. <laughs> but... You know, that's just the way it goes. So the answer is, the time to sell is never. Because, you know, the further we get away from the date of manufacture for a lot of this stuff, the price is Yeah, but they, there are extenuating circumstances, of course, you know, but you're right. I mean, I mean, for instance, I... But before we go down that road, uh, I, I want to know the name of your book and how do people get it? It's called Confessions of a Vintage Guitar Dealer. Uh -huh. And I put a lot of stupid things that I did in there, including drugs. And I figure I might as well tell, tell the story. The truth, yeah. yeah, especially at this point, I'm 69 years old. If they give me a life, I mean, how long could that possibly be? You know, it's like, you know, so. Yeah, so, and can they get it through the store? Or do they oh yeah, they can get it through the store, they can get it online, at Amazon, I mean, oh, okay, there's a million great. ways to okay. get it. Great. And it's um, uh, Hal Leonard Publishing. publishing great. Right? great. They, they did the book. And I had a book that I did prior to that um, which was more of a photo book, you know, about, you know, showing pictures. I didn't really, there's a little bit of text and a little bit of story, but, you know, I figured who's going to want to read and hear this crap, you know. I mean, I can't believe you guys want to hear this crap. But well, that's all right. You know, fascinated so, by it. Yeah. So, but, you know, I figured people just want to see pictures of guitars. So I did the first book, and Tom Petty actually he was an old friend of mine. He did the forward to that book. And this new book, um, which I 
came out about a year and a half ago. Um, Richie Sambora and, and Joe Bonamassa both did the forward and the preference, uh, preface. preface to that. Book. Yeah, cool. Oh. Now, how many how many guitars do you have at the moment? Well, in the store, I mean, I would say total. With I have a warehouse where I have a lot of guitars yeah. and I have a personal collection and combined, you know, probably over two thousand guitars. Damn. Um, have you played every single one of them? At one point I did, but maybe for about 30 <laughs> seconds, you know, while I was buying it, you know, yeah. so. Do you have, do you have a, f maybe it might be hard to pick a favorite, but is there a few that stand out or just I mean, like. There, there's a lot of them that yeah. I really dig. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, what's your favorite kid? I mean, I love <laughs> 335s. Um, I love beautiful blind arch top guitars. You know, um, I love. A lot of the early Fenders, I love Les Pauls, I love ES-330s, which are kind of sort of under the radar. A lot of people aren't that hip to them, but, you know, Graham Green played oh, I love them. I love those guitars, they're, they're yeah. Very lightweight. You can kind of sit on a couch and play it and have some sound coming off it. Like if you play a Les Paul, you play a 335 with a block of wood going no, down no, the middle. No there's comparison. not a lot of sound there, but with a 330, you can kind of sit on a couch, watch television, and mm -hmm. sit there and noodle and actually hear what you're doing. Yeah, it's, it's an art shop guitar. It's just thin, you know. Yep. Yeah. What's, do you know what the most expensive guitar you got is? Uh, Probably a pre-war Martin, right? Well, I mean, pre, there are some pre-war Martins that are very valuable. I mean, I've sold a number of guitars that are over a quarter of a million dollars. Wow, damn, And really? these are not memorabilia guitars. These are just for vintage the, for what they are yeah. not you know because of who owned them yeah. yeah did um name people buy them or they'll just collect it well joe bonamassa's bought a few really nice right. ones from me and joe is really an authority on a lot of this is stuff. he is he getting is he catching you slowly uh, well he has <laughs> some really 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 important guitars and uh, he doesn't have as many guitars as I do, but he's got some really great guitars. Yeah. And Joe is almost like family with me. And, yep. You know, I mean, and I'll tell you, you know, and I, I've got to say this, and, you know, some people will disagree with me, but um, the way he is playing right now, I just got off of this blues cruise with him, and, you know, Josh Smith and Kirk mm -hmm. Fletcher, you, you know those guys. Yeah, sure. you know, I mean, those are really, they're really great players. But for the type of music that Joe is playing, I don't think anybody in history has played as well as he does for that style. Now he's not a bebop player like course, you, you know, where he yeah. you know plays you know you know super you know extended chords and stuff like that. But for the type of music he does, I don't think there's anybody that can even carry his guitar case right now. Huh. Damn, cool. I've never seen. We've, we've, Bruce gotten, has been talking to him. About coming on the show, and he said he would, but he's a great guy. He's got an he, he's got an amazing band. Mm. Do you know who Anton Fig is? Yeah, you know, from the David Letterman. David Letterman, yeah. Like, this guy Michael Rhodes playing bass. Mm -hmm. um, he's got Reese Winans, who was Stevie Ray Vaughan's keyboard player. Oh, okay. But the guy is one of the best B3 players I've ever heard, and also New Orleans-type piano. Um, he's just killing it. Um, he's got Lee Thornburg, who you probably know. Sure, sure, you know, sure. Lee is a great trumpet player. 
Pauly Sarah. Do you know well, I know Pauly. I work with Pauly. Pauly is yeah. bad news, man. I mean, yeah, I not know. only is he a great singing? horn player, his singing is and amazing. his keyboard playing yeah. is killer. So he was killing it on the on the boat, you know, on this blues cruise that we I just came off of, and Joe and Reese were sitting in with his band, and it was it's really I mean the Joe Bonamassa blues cruise is an amazing musical experience. There's a lot of great players on there. There's a guy named James Hunter that I really really dig. He's an English um, R&B singer and guitar player, but he's in a lane that nobody else is. His tunes are fabulous, he's a great singer, and he's one of the most unique guitar players. His rhythm style is incredible, um, just different from everybody. His lead playing is almost purposely a little bit sloppy, but it works with the style of the, the whole package of what he's doing. Mm -hmm. it, it's sort of like early 60s pre-Beatles R&B. Mm -hmm. And his vocals are like a combination of like Sam Cooke and Gene Chandler yeah. and you know, all these guys that were like, you know, the early R&B guys, um, you know, Chuck Jackson, you know, I mean, the stuff is like, it, it all sounds familiar to me and hits me in a place where I just love it. And Joe loves it, and Michael Rhodes loves it, and Reese loves it, and you know, all those guys are crazy about it. But it's not the kind of thing that might appeal to a lot of young people because he doesn't use distortion pedals on his guitar. It doesn't sound like an angry bumblebee and all yeah, that crap that everybody, <laughs> everybody kind of sounds like this guy in two measures you would know his vocals and you would know his guitar playing. Yeah. Which is like, you know, when you heard Ray Charles or right, Aretha Franklin right. or any of those guys, you know, I mean, you know, Al Green or any of those guys, within two measures you know who that was right, performing. for sure. Now, you know, there's so many people sound alike, I can't tell one yeah. from the next. What's, right. what's his name, James? James Hunter. James he has Hunter. been James Hunter Six. Yeah. And I think that he's in a spot that nobody is in. White, white guy know. or black guy? White guy. Yeah. But he sounds black. Yeah. And the tunes are fantastic. And the way they're produced and everything sounds like music from 63 or before. Yeah. Fantastic. Cool. Now, Blues Cruise, I'm trying to think, how many people were going to these Blues Cruise? Well, I mean, there's probably 2,500 passengers, yeah. but there's, um, there's about 20 acts, and Joe personally picks each one, right. and the quality of the acts is outstanding. I mean, this time was Los Lobos was on there. Oh, cool. um, uh, there, you know, there was a band called The Brothers Landreth, who were killer. Um, Josh came up to me, Josh Smith, and he said, you've got to hear this kid sing. This kid's unbelievable. And he was. And the band was really, really good. And then there were just a bunch of other bands. It's Larkin Poe, these two girls. One girl played slide, and uh, the other girl plays regular guitar, and they both sing. And they're really, really good. I mean, you know, just everything has an Americana thing happening with it. Some of it's R&B, some of it's blues. Some of it is, you know, on the edge of all that stuff. But the quality is astoundingly good. And, um, you know, it's just, and, and the beauty of it is, you know, there's 20 acts. Everybody plays like maybe two or three times. And with all that, you can only see if you're <coughs> really on it. You can only see maybe 12 of them or 14. Mm. I mean, between 
meals and whatever else you do, you know, there's so much to do on the ship, and you know the port really is not even a consideration. It doesn't matter. Where did, you, where did they go? It went to Montego Bay, and that yeah. was okay. But I mean, it's sort of unimportant. You go in there to hear music, right? And then, uh, well, I've then, done the jazz cruise quite a bit. Uh huh. You know. Yeah. So, it, and that's thing. what a lot yeah. of the cruises are doing now is right. they're having these theme cruises so that. It, you know, it gives these musicians a chance to play. It gives the people who are fans a chance to hear a lot of stuff in the genre that they really dig. And then I have this jacket that I'm wearing oh, that my that? son gave me about six oh. years ago. Oh. I love to it play says, poker. It says Poker King of L.A. Right. And, I, you know, anybody who's ever played poker with me back in the day would get a good laugh out of this because... I'm a loser <laughs> overall, but I did win the poker contest. They had a poker tournament on the cruise, and I won it. So I am the <laughs> poker champion from the Joe Bonamassa Blues Cruise, and I will be until next year. So I can keep this crown and this jacket. <laughs> I can actually wear the coat now, uh, you know, without completely hiding <laughs> under the covers or something. Yeah. And nobody can dethrone me for a year. For a year. So, um, so I... What did you win? Did you win? No, nah, I wouldn't have much. Just five hundred bucks. Right. It doesn't matter. There was nine. There were uh, ten people at the table. Yeah. Eight of them were asleep, and one was blind. And then there was me. <laughs> I told the blind guy that I had a better hand than him. Yeah. I ended up winning. You know. So, but I'll take it anywhere I can get it. Yeah. Yeah. Now I can wear the jacket my son bought. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's great, man. <laughs> so overall, I mean, it's so much fun, the, the cruise. I mean, it's everything. I mean, you know, I've done a lot of cruising before because I used to live in Miami and, and it was kind of a port. And, you know, so uh, but I would spend a lot of time in the casinos of ships because it was a mariachi band. and It was a lot of hokey nice. entertainment. This is the opposite of that. This is such an overload of great entertainment that, you know, it's almost an OD, you know. Yeah, oh yeah, great. it's totally a hang. Yeah. So cool. And then at the end, of, you know, late at night, a lot of the bands, they sit in with each other Jamming, and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. And it's really good. I mean, the quality is everything. The people on the cruise are really nice people. Everybody's there for the music. Every, You know, all the bands are talking to the people. And it's yeah. like, you know, nobody's got their head up their butt. And everybody's right. like regular folk. And How long is the cruise for? Four days. Oh, perfect. So, yeah, it's uh, it's... All you can take in four days. Yeah, yeah. But any anybody that I think has been on it really says they get their money's worth and really. Oh yeah, that's fantastic, Joe's. When we when we have him on, we definitely want to talk about this. Just how much he's dominated the internet. He's Joe. Just, he just kills. Yeah, it's it. incredible. Yeah. yeah. But it's you know I've known him since he was twelve. Yeah. And he's always been like it child prodigy for the style of music that he plays and like when he's 12 and 13 he was sitting in with bb king and yeah. stuff like that you know so he's you know but his his head is on so straight i mean his business end of it is unbelievable his guitar playing is untouchable for that style right now i mean incredible he he keeps the same band person for person on retainer so that he has the same guys playing so they're top top players but it's a band and they've been together for four years so it sounds like a band with the great great players yeah. so he he's like one of these guys where he wants to give his audience the absolute best of 
what he can do. So his nose is always to the grindstone trying to get better. And um, just to give you an example of the kind of guy that he is, is uh, the first one I went on was three years ago. And he's up on stage, outdoors, at night, open, open air, playing a 59 Sunburst Les Paul. It starts to rain, and he continues playing the Les Paul. And when he came off stage, I went, Joe, are you crazy, man? You're playing a 59 Les Paul out in the rain. He said, see these people out here? They paid a lot of money to see me. I want to give them the best that I can possibly do. And that's the way he is. He's out on the cruise ship this time. He's playing a 58 Flying V. It could be a half million dollar guitar. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, that's the way he is. Yeah. And, um, you know, I admire him because his, he's so serious about what he's doing. And he's right at the prime right now of his, career, his playing. You know, he's kind of gone up to a certain level where it's like, uh, you know, seeing a Clapton in his prime, except I think he's better, believe it or not. I mean, Clapton had a lot of great tunes, and Clapton was great and all that, but, I mean, Joe is in such command. And the way he is on stage, you can't take your eyes off of him because he's just like a presence. So it's like the entire package that, the, you know, I, I admire him because he's a, just a great kid. All the people that work for him are really, really nice, and they're all dead serious about everything. Everybody, yeah. and his finger is on every right. piece of entertainment on the cruise. I mean, he doesn't want to let anything go by that's not of the quality that he wants. Right. Great, great. Yeah, I want to check. I want to check it out. Like, I'm excited to have him on the show. Yeah, he's really worth seeing, and yeah. he's one of the great guys. And he's very intelligent, very articulate. I actually do a talk with him on the ship every year, and we talk about guitars. And we're sitting in this auditorium where there's about a thousand people, and we're just sitting around bullshitting about guitars, just like what we're doing. Yeah. And people love it, because, I mean, they know that's sort of also part of his thing, is the cool guitars and how into it he is. He has a house that is basically a museum, and he <laughs> calls it Nerdsville. Nerdsville. And he considers himself a nerd. He was like, you know, kind of a little chubby kid, you know, that just loved to play guitar, and he considers himself like a nerd, but when he goes up on stage, he has this image with his glasses and the whole thing. Yeah. And he's almost like a different person, but when you talk to him, you love him because he's yeah. just... Like I say, I'm looking right. forward to meeting him, you know. Yeah. And, well, and I'll make sure that you do because, I okay. mean, yeah, I mean we've tried to talk and put it together. And he will, he will, because if you're yeah. talking guitars, you're speaking yeah. his language. Yeah. yeah. So, well, uh, yeah. you know, he'll, he'll dig it because yeah. that's kind of, he lives for that kind of yeah. stuff. Right. Well, and actually, if... What's that? You know, to to kind of segue into another topic, uh, I just happened to be part of it. I know that he's involved in your All Guitar All Network. Guitar Network. Now, this is something that we're just launching. At this point, it's we're calling it a soft launch because it's up. And if you uh, go to the App Store and you type in All Guitar Network, you can see it and it's up. But we're waiting to get, you know, we're adding content to what's up there. And basically what it is, it's movies, it's TV shows, it's um, YouTube videos where, you know, you would say, Bruce Foreman says, this iconic video of Thumbs Carlisle or right. Jimmy Bryant right. is something that you ought to catch. And a show like, you know, we're gonna recommend like, 
good so videos. Curate, we're YouTube. curating YouTube, right. and that's just part of it. Then there's lessons. Then there's repairs. Then there's just guitar talk. And I mean, you know, Josh is going to do a show. Mm -hmm. I hope you do a show too. You well, know, I'm, I'm thinking, thinking we could even even in here at the end of the Guitar Wing Networks do like a a video. Yeah, you know, and have everybody Absolutely. play a little bit. We can put a camera right in here and doing what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, or really maybe cool. just make it a little bit more condensed yeah, for, I mean, for video. You know, yeah, I mean, for it's video, obviously a good looking place to do it too. So yeah, well, I mean, the main thing is is that we're trying to keep most of the stuff under ten minutes per episode, right? Because the attention span of the general public, mm. as you probably know, we've already we've already lost half of them now. Oh, actually, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, listen, I figured I when you told them it was me, we, we, they probably <laughs> were long we got them because because they're in their car commuting, and you know, in Los Angeles, then you get them for an hour. Oh, <laughs> uh, there you go. Yeah, they, and that's yeah. a five minute drive. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if around the go corner, they're, they're just going uh, to the far. corner store, you know, yeah. <laughs> or the corner pot store, I guess. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. And then it takes even longer to get back because you can't find your way home. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's like one-stop shopping. You know, yeah. Tom Petty came to my store one time, and uh, at the time there was a pot store in my center, and there was a massage parlor in my center. <laughs> I said, it's like one-stop shopping. Yeah. You got guitars, you got massage, you got yeah. pot. You yeah. know, what else could you want? Yeah. You know, back in the day, I you're mean, gonna you could have busted for yeah. a... The seed, yeah, they got a pizza place. Oh, too. cool. Then you're okay. Coffee, pizza, you know. pizza, and ice cream, and you're okay. We got it all. <laughs> that's, that's that sounds like a really great idea of what, what you you guys are putting together. There, you have to see it. I've been working on it with my friend Mark Rivette for the mm -hmm. last year and a half. Yeah, Joe's one of the owners. Richie Sambor is one of the owners. These guys, I kind of ran it by them early on, and everybody has kind of been on. But we've tried to keep it quiet up until we're you know, ready to actual do like a full. I hope launch. I didn't blow anything. No, 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 no. I mean, I mean, it's I fine. Did, I there's no, did no one people. Show on yeah, no, no. Okay. And people, people will be able to see it and and see what's going on with it and get the gist of it. But you know, when we make like the full announcement, we want to have enough content up there to, um, you know, really um, make a big in, statement. Yeah, you know, yeah. and, and the thing that's kind of cool about it, <clears throat> like if yourself. If you wanted to put content up of you playing and maybe you at right. the gig and you would, you know, and kind of condense it to, yeah. you know, certain things, at the end of the segment, you can put, you know, Bruce Foreman is playing September 4th at Bruce Foreman's right. records are available right. at right. Bruce Foreman t-shirt or swag or anything right. that you're selling and you make all the money on it. So mm. we're looking just for the content right. and w you can promote what you want. You know, it seems to it. me we could, like, at the end of every Guitar Wank episode with a guest, we could have them play. We could play with them, ask a few questions, and make video content of what we basically did here. And Absolutely. It would just and be a nice little doing, companion piece. What you're doing, actually, with the talk, though, is really cool because it's sort of a fly-on-the-wall thing. I mean, a lot of the people that you have on and, uh, you know... You, the the general audience they see him on stage they're you know like especially like with a guy like Joe you see him as one thing but when you talk to him as a friend it's a whole other right. thing oh, and it's like getting to know somebody on a personal level it's really cool being a fly on the wall seeing what goes on backstage how guitar geeks talk to each other you know in the guitar language really? that we speak and yeah. you know that yeah, kind right. of thing you know so. Um, it's it's really uh, uh, you know at my age at this point I may not see it 
in its full regalia, you know, I mean, because it'll take a while for it to really, yeah. you know, catch on. But I think it's really something that's a legacy that I really want. No, I'm not, after, to not after coming on Guitar Wing. Guitar Wing, I mean, you, you might have ruined your career right right here. <laughs> well, so, you know, I've Well, done, I could have put it into the stratosphere of, like, the seven listeners we have right now. I mean, that's just going to... It'll blow it out of the water, so, you know. And if they're busy stuck in traffic, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, They'll watch those in a couple times. Actually, we have a lot of listeners that write to us and say, yeah, they're, they're going to gigs, they're going to work, they're stuck in traffic. You know, we have right. a, lot of, a lot of guys in Europe that are driving all over the country and they live for every episode. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's, you know. It's, yeah, we're getting a lot of that from my store videos because yep. it's really caught on. Oh, yeah. And really, I mean, the thing is, is I love Seinfeld, but I've seen every episode 25 times. I could almost yeah. recite the lines right. before they say them. I mean, there's just not enough stuff to watch. So if you're a tennis enthusiast, you're going to want to watch a tennis channel. If you're a golf enthusiast, you want to watch golf. If you're a, a knitter, you can watch a knitting channel, <laughs> yeah. whatever. Well, those so are this is really, you know, fights, man, those needles, it's <laughs> yeah, dangerous, right. yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. the, the cool thing is that, you know, guitar people talk a certain language and they want to, you know, hear all this nonsense that we talk about and yeah. all this other stuff it means something to guitar people right right um see so folks when we talk about nuts we're not necessarily talking about balls <laughs> right exactly but maybe we are maybe we are <laughs> you know you have to kind of it's code so you have to pay attention right Thank you.